who, if they came walking in to Heritage Grace Church this morning, would make you cringe? Who wouldn't you want to come in and sit in that empty chair next to you? Is there a person or a type of person that you think is so sinful that you wouldn't want to associate with them? Who, if you did choose to associate with them or had them into your home or you went to their home, would cause your friends and coworkers to question your integrity? As you think about those people, whomever they are, who would want to be their friend? Jesus would. Now, it sounds cheesy and trite, but let me assure you, there's absolutely nothing trite about that statement. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus was friends with those people. And it's exactly what we see in our passage this morning, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Would you turn in your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Mark? Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, I think you'll be helped by having a Bible on your lap in front of you. And so we have some Bibles on the table over there. You're more than welcome to grab that and use it for the morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, and you can use that for this morning, and you can take it home with you uh, as our gift to you. Uh, and if you want someone to read through it with you or you have questions about it, we would love to do that as well. Uh, but turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're continuing our series through Mark, and we have made it so far through Mark chapter 1 and the beginning of Mark chapter 2, and we find ourselves in verse 13 through 17. Just a refresher for us, uh, Mark is in the New Testament. Uh, It's uh, surrounded by some names you may recognize as you flip through the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll run into some wacky names. But there's a chunk of names which are pretty familiar. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are four Gospels. A Gospel just means good news. These are accounts of good news. Uh, And this one is Mark. And so you can find Mark. There's a table of contents in your Bible. Or if you uh, want some help, just nudge someone next to you and they'd be glad to help you. Uh, We find ourselves situated in chapter 2. That's the big number in our Bible. The big numbers are the chapters. And then small numbers are our verses. So verses 13 through 17. And once you've found it, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? This really is God's word for us today. And if you believe that to be true, when we're finished reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you agree with that statement, I would encourage you to say, even with some vigor, thanks be to God because we are thankful for his word. So let's hear God's word from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But let me pray for the reading and hearing of God's word. God, as we come to your word, remind us in a new and fresh way that this is your word. This is you revealing yourself to us. This is who you are. We pray that you would transform us by it, and that through the reading of and preaching of your word, we ask that Jesus would be glorified in it. We know that you love to and will answer that prayer. And so we pray in the name of Jesus, the mighty name of our Savior, King, and friend, and all God's people said, amen. Let's hear God's word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. 
And as he reclined at the table of his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. Mark has been explicitly clear that Jesus is not some wandering vagrant, some traveling miracle worker, or whatever else you'd like to label him as. He is, as we've seen so far, a teacher. It hasn't exactly been subtle, but in each and every passage we run into, we run into high drama, right? We've seen disciples being called, demons being cast out, lepers being cleansed, paralytics getting up and walking. But what's woven throughout each and every passage we see is Jesus teaching. I've quoted Romans 10, I think, in every single sermon so far through the Gospel of Mark. But faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Jesus came to teach, to preach, to proclaim. He came with a message. What was his message? We found that in chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news of God. Jesus came with a message of salvation. His other words and deeds, they illustrate these things. But we can't miss this droning note throughout Jesus' ministry that whoever he is with, wherever he goes, he is teaching. He's preaching. He's preaching the good news of God. Imagine if Jesus just stayed in one place with his buddies and then maybe eventually he settled down and minded his own business and he you know, eventually lived the Galilean dream. We wouldn't know this good news. He came with a message. This is Jesus' mission. He came to teach. We see this in verse 13. And he went out beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. He is with the people who need the gospel. And as he's been doing, he's teaching them. This is Jesus' MO. This is what he does. And it plants seeds for us when we see things repeated like this in the Bible for us to pay attention. This is Jesus' missional impulse. And it's no surprise that it's exactly what he's commissioned his followers, the church, this church, to do. Jesus models basic evangelism. We don't need to overcomplicate it. To save the lost, you need to be with the lost and share the gospel. We're going to see this throughout our passage this morning. And I hope this passage pushes you like it's pushed me this week. So how does this actually play out for Jesus? Well, first we see that Jesus calls the self-serving. Jesus calls the self-serving. Verses 14 and 15. It almost just rolls by us, but let's think about this for a second. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. 
Now, to better understand why this shouldn't just roll over us, I think it's helpful for us to have a better understanding of what a tax collector is. What is a tax collector? Well, we don't need a full background, but it's hard to think of somebody in their culture who would be more despised, more hated than a tax collector. Tax collectors worked as middlemen between the Romans and the Jews, right? The Jews, there's a Roman occupation, and so the Romans would take taxes, right? There would be taxes, and the, the Jewish people then would look at these tax collectors, people who, who decided, hey, I'm going to work as one of these middlemen and be the tax collector. They would look at them as traitors of their people. They were Roman corroborators, it's not hard for us to draw parallels with what we would think of as informants in Nazi or communist regimes. Someone who is willing to betray their country and their blood for personal gain. They were, by very definition, self-serving. Even in the way that a tax collector conducted his business was self-serving. Because they would have to meet a quota that they would have to give to the Romans. But if they were willing to put in the work, they could then extort the people that they were collecting, uh, collecting taxes from and then keep the profits for themselves. They could line their pockets. And so we could understand, at least in a small way, how utterly hated a tax collector was. They gave up everything for the God of money, the false God of money. Really, they gave it all up. To their peers, they would be lumped in the same moral category as thieves and murderers. They were so untrustworthy that they weren't even legally allowed to be a witness in court. Uh, they were excommunicated from the synagogue. They were a disgrace to their family. They gave up everything. They functionally sold their soul for the financial gain that they may find. And yet Jesus calls a tax collector. He says, follow me. I mean, this is more than cringeworthy to a first century Jew. This is legitimately offensive. Some have suggested how contact with Levi here, as Jesus is interacting him and calling him to be his disciple, is actually more offensive than the contact that Jesus had with a leper uh, that we saw earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Because the leper didn't choose his condition, but the tax collector absolutely did. Now, Matthew, one of the other names I said of the gospel writers, uh, tells this story as his story. And so most agree that Levi, who we run into here and in the gospel of Luke, is Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, the gospel writer. And it's not unusual for people to have more than one name. We've already run into uh, Simon in the gospel of Mark so far, and Simon is also known as Cephas, uh, and maybe best known as Peter, the Apostle Peter. So it's not unusual that we would have this Levi-Matthew uh, distinction here. But when we think of Matthew or Levi, we often think of what he becomes, right? But we forget where he comes from. Levi is self-serving scum of the earth. And yet Jesus calls him. He tells, this, Mark tells this story in only a few words, but almost as surprising as Jesus calling a tax collector is Levi's response. He actually does it. He actually follows him. In Luke's gospel, it says that he left everything and followed Jesus. 
Now, Levi has proven that he has the capacity to leave everything. Right? He's proven that he's able to do that. He left everything to follow this false god of money. Right? He left, uh, you would leave your, your religious family, your, your actual biological family. You were ostracized because of the decision that you made to worship this false god of money. So he's already left everything. But then all of a sudden here, when Jesus calls him, he leaves everything to follow Jesus. Leaves all the riches, all the rewards, all that he's worked for. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, have you considered that there might be something so good, so worth it, that it would be worth leaving all the riches in the world? That's what Christianity claims to offer. So I wonder what you make of that this morning. But we see that for Levi here, this is not just loose affiliation. That's not what following means. It's something that he doesn't just think or believe. It's something that has action. It's something that he actually does. And this leads us to a question as we kind of see these, uh, this story unraveling. Why would Jesus call the self-serving? He couldn't pick a person that's more the epitome of self-service than a tax collector. Why would he call the self-serving? Why would he call Levi? Well, this is critical to understanding Christianity. If we get this wrong, we, we build a really bad foundation to build a building on. Right? Everything starts to fall apart. Don't miss this. Because Christianity is unique. It's not about what you bring to the table or how good you are. Jesus calls Levi, not because of who Levi is, but because of who Jesus is. Don't miss this. He is that merciful. His mission is to come and save sinners. This isn't an isolated incident from beginning to end of the whole story of history, the whole story of God redeeming humanity. We see this over and over and over. And not even just like a little bit unlikely people, often the most unlikely people. Jesus' words wouldn't line up with his actions if he just went around looking for the most squeaky clean person to be his follower. Jesus came to cleanse the spiritually sick and revive the spiritually dead. And if that's true, as surprising as it is that Jesus would call this self-serving tax collector, it shouldn't surprise us at all. This is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of this good news. The next question we need to ask is, why would Levi do this? Right? Why would Jesus do this? Okay, maybe you, you could just say, Jesus is a good guy. You know, he sees the diamond in the rough. But why would Levi do this? He gives it all up to follow Jesus. Again, up to this point, Levi's God is his money. But his eyes are opened here to a greater glory. Levi rightly is giving up whatever it takes to follow Jesus. Even money, something that tempts many of us in this room. I'm reminded again of the Jim Elliott quote I shared a few weeks ago. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And for each and every one of you in this room here today, Jesus issues that same call to you. He says, follow me. And that confronts us with the same confrontation that Levi felt when he was called by Jesus. And it asks us the question, what are you worshiping? 
In what ways does the sin in your life reveal self-service? We are all self-serving. You could boil down every single sin in your life and you could boil it down to what, what's in it for me? What am I trying to get? And so what is Jesus calling you to leave today? I mean, really leave to follow him. It's hard, but how good is it that being a self-serving sinner is not automatically disqualifying? Jesus calls the self-serving, and that is good news for each and every one of us here today. Jesus calls the self-serving. We also see in our passage that Jesus confronts the self-righteous. He calls the self-serving, and he confronts the self-righteous. I love this. Jesus goes to Levi's house, and Levi is like, oh man, I got a new friend, Jesus. I need to invite my friends. We're gonna have a party. But Levi is a, kind of a rough dude, right? So he invites his friends, and then we get this sort of motley crew of this not-so-reputable company in his house. Here it's described as tax collectors and sinners. It's not even tax collectors and other sinners. It's just tax collectors as one sort of bucket of people and then sinners, whatever that means, as some other bucket of people. All have sinned, but by identifying this group of people as sinners, we have a pretty clear picture of who these people are. To the religious leaders, to society at large, these people were labeled by their sin. You look at this person, you say, that's a sinner. But I love, the reason I love this is Levi is modeling what we see today, right? Maybe it's true for you or has been true for you. Those who have found the joy of coming to Jesus make the best evangelists. A new Christian's zeal is contagious, almost to a fault sometimes. But Levi is essentially saying here, hey, old friends, meet my new friend. I love this. And I wonder if this might even help shape our own evangelistic efforts as Christians to even think beyond the person that we're sharing the gospel with. What if that coworker or neighbor that you have a burden for became a Christian? How amazing would that be? Spiritually blind, given sight. Spiritually lost, now found. Spiritually dead, now made alive. But even that, don't stop there. Think beyond that person that you're tempted to think maybe is beyond reach is not beyond reach. We see that with Levi here. But imagine if that friend put their faith in Jesus. Think of how many avenues into their life, into their social circles, into their families that there could be. The ripples of the gospel are cascading into the lives of these tax collectors and sinners as Levi puts his faith in Jesus. And so let that today be further motivation for you in evangelism. You and I will never know on this side of eternity just how far the ripples go of faithfully sharing the gospel. We see, though, in our passage that not everybody is thrilled about, you know, this house party at Levi's house. It says in verse 16, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The religious elites are disgusted with the fact that Jesus is eating with these kinds of people. And we get the impression, too, Jesus isn't like he got invited to Levi's house and he's just kind of like standing in the corner being like, these are not my people, right? He is with them. He's reclining 
with them. Now that's certainly, don't hear this wrong. This is really important. Jesus is not doing what they do. Jesus is not giving endorsements to their sin. Jesus does not go light on sin. There's no one in the world who hates sin more than Jesus. Jesus doesn't go light on sin. He takes sin so seriously that it would lead to him dying for sin. But he isn't afraid to be with people who sin. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And even one step further, it says that they, these tax collectors and the sinners, were reclining with Jesus. There's a sense that here, if if Levi is following Jesus, Jesus is his new rabbi, his teacher. If Levi is following Jesus, Jesus is now the guest of honor at his house. And if people are reclining with him, Jesus is acting as the host. And so the religious leaders are sickened by this. How could he eat with them? Why would he do something so scandalous? We can pause here and look at the Pharisees and understand that their fundamental goal is good. I know we don't hear that a lot. They're the bad guys most of the time. But their fundamental goal is good. They want to maintain a life of purity. They want to be obedient to God. But in an effort to be so good, they've missed it completely. Their love for purity and obedience causes them to hate those who aren't like them. These Pharisees look great on the outside, but they're rotten to the core on the inside. Maybe they have, or maybe they had good intentions. Maybe they're worried about Jesus' reputation. But we're going to see as this goes, that in all throughout Scripture, following all the outward rules is not and has never been enough. And if we think that it is, it means that we're hypocrites like these Pharisees. Because hypocrisy is probably the perfect word to describe these Pharisees. To be a hypocrite is to say one thing, yet to be or, or do another thing. And this is not unique to the Pharisees. It's common in all circles, including ours. These Pharisees are self-righteous, which at its core is not all that different from a self-serving tax collector. But somehow it's maybe even more dangerous. We see this as Jesus confronts them in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These well-known words of Jesus, they cut deep. Healthy people don't need a doctor. The sick do. And this is why self-righteousness is so dangerous, because it's spiritual blindness. If you think you're healthy, you, you, you assume, I don't need a doctor. But it couldn't be further from the truth. And we get this. It comes to us so naturally. Kids, you know what I mean, right? At least I'm better than my brother or my sister. right? At least my room's a tiny bit cleaner than theirs. Or at least, you know, my dishes, at least half of them made it into the dishwasher. Whatever it is, we're good at self-righteousness. We're good at elevating ourselves. Adults, you're not exempt either. Right? At least I'm not like that person that I work with. At least I'm not like that person that I see and I drive by every day. 
The irony of this passage and the irony of what Jesus says here is that these tax collectors and sinners have actually a better handle on reality than the Pharisees. We don't know whether those that are reclining with Jesus truly repented of their sin and followed Jesus or not, but we know that everyone in the story, every character other than Jesus is equally as lost, whether they know it or not, whether you are self-serving or self-righteous or whatever else you are, we are all sick with sin. Self, anything, is bad. But the good news, the great news, is that Jesus, the great physician, came to heal the spiritually sick. This is his entire mission. But you must see yourself as lost before you can be found. You must know your affliction before you can find relief. You must know that you're spiritually dead before you can be made spiritually alive. Jesus wasn't afraid to be a friend of sinners, of associating with sinners. He was so willing to associate with sinners like them, sinners like you, sinners like me, that he died for sin. This is the good news, that Jesus, the sinless son of God, came to save. He came to substitute himself for self-serving, self-righteous sinners. Our selfless savior died the death that we deserve for our selfish rebellion. That's at the core of the good news. And so what we see in Jesus reclining at the table with sinners, it's an illustration of exactly what he's doing with all of humanity by coming to earth as a man. As the God-man in his very life, Jesus was reclining at the table of humanity. Jesus loved sin-sick humanity so much that he came to live and die as a man, not as a sinner, but for sinners. And he alone, as fully God and fully man, defeated death. He rose from the grave on the third day. And as he did that, not so that he, he did that not so that sin for humanity could just be ignored by God, but that sin was actually paid for. And the good news is that this call that Jesus offered to Levi as he passed by him in his sin in the tax booth, and said, follow me, is the call for each and every one of us today. This call is the same call that Jesus taught throughout his ministry and commissioned the church to go and do and teach the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent, turn from your sin, turn away from self-serving false gods, from self-righteous religious piety. Repent and believe. Turn to Jesus as Lord. Accept this free offer of grace and follow him. And just like Levi's following, this isn't simply just thinking or believing something. It's not just intellectual assent of who Jesus is and what he's done. This belief that Jesus calls us to have, and it sounds like common sense, it's something that we need to actually do. To be a Christian is to be, by very definition, a Christ follower. Going to church, 
following all the rules, identifying as a Christian or assuming that you are one is not the same as submitting to and following Jesus. This is a sobering and challenging reminder for us that you could profess to be a Christian. You could optically seem to be doing all the right things. Right? Your life could look like you're reclining at the metaphorical table with Jesus, but never truly repent and believe. Being Jesus adjacent is not the same as being a follower of Jesus. But let me reassure you, if these things are convicting for you, if this feels like a heavy weight for you this morning, that's actually really good news. Because you need to know of your need. You need to be aware of your affliction. Our salvation is not reliant on the strength of our faith, but on the strength of the one who our faith is in. We need to know our sickness and our need for Jesus, the physician of our souls. What would be most terrifying is if you're here this morning, and this is just, you're hearing these words and you're completely unaffected. If you struggle with this, this assurance of salvation and this confident hope that we can have, come talk to me after the service. I'd love to give you a little booklet that could encourage you in this. But this should challenge us in other ways as well. I doubt that anyone here, if we went one-to-one and polled everybody in the room, I doubt anyone here would actually endorse this kind of self-righteous, hypocritical, pharisaical belief. At least not in theory, but what about in practice? Is your life arranged in such a way that you have no meaningful and missional interaction with non-Christians? I don't simply mean knowing that non-Christians exist. I mean real relationships, real friendships, real witness. We may have a little bit more Pharisee in us than we think. Many of you got here this morning by driving down Victoria Street. Where does your mind go as you look at motel after motel that you wouldn't dare ever check into? Where does your mind go as you see the bright lights of Roxanne's. It's tempting to think all kinds of self-righteous thoughts that I'm not like one of those people. Where does your mind go when you drive by Weber and Victoria and you see all those tents? Where does your mind go when you see another advertisement for a drag event in our city or just another pride flag? Where does your mind go when you see someone who's still afraid to leave their house without a mask? Or where does your mind go when you read another post of an angry anti-vaxxer? Who are you tempted to slap a label on and then discard? Labeling helps us trick ourselves into forgetting that this is a real person with real thoughts, real feelings, real dreams, a family, more importantly, that that person is a person made in the image of God. That person who is someone to be loved. They don't need us to cheerlead and endorse their sin or folly. But they need, just like us, Jesus. They need the love of Jesus. They need to be loved as Jesus would love them. I can't do that if I drive by 
or look from a distance and thank God that I'm not like one of them. They need the practical love of Jesus to be shown to them, but even more significant, they need the love of Jesus to be shared with them. And that doesn't just happen by accident. No one is beyond God's reach. I thank God that Jesus is a friend of sinners like them, sinners like me, or I'd be utterly lost. History records the account of Oliver Cromwell when he ruled England in the 17th century. England was experiencing a crisis. Uh, They had no silver, and therefore they couldn't mint new coins. And as they searched the country, they, they were trying to find this needed silver. And all the silver that could be found was in the silver statues of the saints in the churches. And when this was reported back to Cromwell, he replied, Melt down the saints and get them back into circulation. Passages like Mark 2, 13 to 17 remind us that when we are tempted towards self-righteousness, we need to get melted down a little bit at our core and put back into circulation with the life-saving news of Jesus. Let's take a note out of Jesus' playbook. His life and ministry shows what it means to be able to be a friend of sinners without sinning. Don't miss that, right? This isn't just an invitation to just go get a bunch of kegs and throw a big party and say, I'm one of the sinners, you know, I'm one of the people. That's not the message here. To be a friend of someone and to love them, really love them, is not the same as supporting or endorsing their sin. But as sinners saved by grace, we in this room, if you're a Christian, ought to understand better than anyone in the world how good it is of news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to get our act together and then say, okay, come on, come follow me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is not that when we finally, you know, attained a certain level of status in the world that he called us. He says, follow me. Right? It's not that if we get our act together, he just gives us this eternal life coupon that we can redeem that he died for us so that we could be redeemed. You and I are not Jesus. We are not dying as a substitute for sinners. We, We don't need to misapply this passage. Primarily, we are the sinners in this passage. But we also need to look at Jesus's life and ministry and ask ourselves, if we claim to follow Jesus, why does our own ministry look so different? Start with the people you live near and work with. Go to dinner, invite them over. This afternoon, make a map of the houses around you and write down their names. If you don't know their names, go find out their names. Spring is upon us. Maybe they're gonna be out doing yard work. Go help them, right? If you can't find any other way to go meet your neighbor, just go knock on the door, apologize that it's taken so long, introduce yourself and find out their name. It's awkward, right? But it's only awkward for a couple seconds. Hospitality literally means to be a lover of strangers. It's central to the Christian life. It's so central that a man is only qualified to be an elder in the church if this describes him, to be hospitable, to be a lover of strangers. And so give time, energy, resources to help the hurting and ask yourself, really ask yourself, am I on a first name basis with anyone in the world 
that we would classify as a sinner? What would it mean to be their friend? What would it mean to actually tell them about this good news? I started about talking about someone just wandering into HGC. Anything's possible. They could just stumble in here. But I like the odds a lot better of your neighbor or your coworker or that person that you see on the street every day of actually coming here uh, because you invited them, not just because they decided to go for a walk through a cornfield in Breslau. But don't just stop at being a smiley neighbor either. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And thank God for that, because there is no one righteous, not one. But Jesus is our host. He is a friend of sinners. He calls the self-serving, he confronts the self-righteous, but he invites us all to his table, a table of his amazing grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed at your mercy. We are amazed at the kindness you've shown us by sending your son to die for us. That because as we sung, the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul could be counted free. That you are just God in all your Justice, it would be satisfied. And that you would then look at Christ and pardon us, sinners though we are. But Heavenly Father, I thank you that even though we can say that, that we are aware of our sin, we're aware of our need, we know our need of a physician, that you don't call us to stay that way, but that you transform us from the inside out. God, I thank you that you call the self-serving. Lord, confront our self-righteous attitudes but that we might faithfully love those who you love for your glory. And in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.